Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action with some of the people who are on strike today. Can you tell us your names and how old you are? So my name's Ivy and I'm 12 years old. My name is Marta and I'm 8 years old. My name's Layla and I'm 11 years old. Inequality is at a 70 year high. Our jobs are going offshore, our jobs are being casualised. 40% of us are trapped in insecure work. The richest 1% have more than the 70% of us at the bottom. And workers will stand up and fight. You've never seen a fight before until you back the Australian workers into a corner and tell them they've got no rights. Those workers will fight. 3CR, union issues and workers' struggles. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. It's becoming increasingly obvious that many of us will be broadcasting from home for quite a while yet. So I'll revert back to what the program sounded like back in March. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. And on the program today, a Walkley Award for Nick McClellan, the work of a Singaporean doctor in Pakistan and Afghanistan, the consequences for West Papua of the death of UN Secretary-General Dave Amishalk in 1961 and a short update on Western Sahara. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. Well, a week, Jan, listener, when how COVID has turned our world upside down. Now we can get arrested if we walk into a bank not wearing a mask. Then again, they've been robbing the community mercilessly for eons without any need for a mask to mask the real bank robbery. Okay, okay, I imagine our listener is screaming at the radio, wrong, Kevin, wrong, the bank's the one place you're not supposed to wear a mask, showing they place their profits ahead of our health, but then that makes them a microcosm of what we're experiencing anyway, and I wasn't prepared to let an incidental like the facts get between me and a very bad joke. Sort of a comedy, using the term loosely, comedy version of US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the pause, normality. As we stay locked down and masked up, enjoying the benefits of the super efficiency of the neoliberal mantra of contracting out government services like, say, uh, overseeing quarantine hotels, not the high point of the pejorative Dan's terms of government, we have to admire the imaginative alternatives being offered by the caring business class party supremo and would-be big state supremo Michael No Brain. Such innovative, deeply researched gems as the government has to do better, not good enough, and similar displays of scorching policy brilliance. Uh, what would you do, Michael? Better. I'd do better. <laughs> yeah, yes, but doing what? Doing better. Look, could you just elaborate a bit? Certainly. Doing better because this government is not good enough. He certainly knows how to hit the mark. Then again, 
already in office, the aforementioned Donald Trample the Poor, was making Michael No-Brain look like Mensa material. People should ignore science, he declared. Not that that on its own is a knock on his renowned intelligence. Greatest intelligence ever, ever. Because he's not alone there. World leaders have been ignoring science for years. None more proudly and intelligently than our very own. Climate change is crap. Climate change is crap. Realising the health of a fossil economy is paramount. And anyway, they always tell us the environmental impact of whatever they're up to will be minimal. There's no jobs on a dead economy. But Donald has differentiated himself by declaring the science addressing COVID-19 should be ignored because it doesn't, they don't, know what it they're talking about, unlike how he knows what he's tweeting about and talking about, telling a slightly sceptical interviewer, like roughly 100% sceptical, that the US of is leading the world in conquering the COVID enemy. The envy of the world. People ring around the world. Which is true, of course, but I'm pretty sure he meant they ring him. And the interviewer kept insisting the US Army is right up there as the one of the worst in the world. And I think the problem was they were at cross-purposes. Donald meant best in the world at being worst in the world. Best pandemic rate ever, ever. Best death rate ever, ever. No, I can't get away with that. Donald did say the US of was number one. He said number one for the lowest mortality rate in the world. And he asked the lackey to confirm that, and the lackey confirmed that, showing they'll tell him anything he wants to hear. And somehow, despite that, the interviewer remained 100% sceptical. Obviously an anarchist, commie, democrat purveyor of fake news. And during the week, our big supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, had a chat with Donald and told us they had compared notes on the COVID virus and on reopening their economies. Emphasis on the latter, I suspect. How educational and informative it would have been to have been able to listen in on that meeting of the minds. Although the way cyber security is going, someone probably was. More leaks and holes than a private security lot at a quarantine hotel. But by midweek, there was an apparent about face by Donald at his first daily update since putting in his bid for the Nobel Prize for Medicine by recommending we all inject ourselves with disinfectant. This week, an unprecedented, unprecedented seeming bout of honesty and association We'd never have mentioned honesty and Donald, but it'll get worse before it gets better, he said, indicating despite the polls, he's still feeling confident of winning the election. Back to ignoring the science. After declaring they were being guided by the medical and scientific advice, because those experts knew what they were talking about, unlike the climate change, if there is such a thing as, climate change charlatans, Scuttlebem has now decided he is better than the medical experts and the economic scientists take precedence, advising that we must cure the health of the economy, get the balance right between a healthy economy and an unhealthy population. Living, breathing, lovely profits and non-living, non-breathing, unlovely collateral damage. Thank goodness when it comes to climate change, if there is such a thing, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review is a true believer in the science, exemplified by its editorial Wednesday 
we should follow the science on coal seed gas, it headlined. See, there's 404 people giving evidence at a New South Wales inquiry into a sand toss-out-the-environment proposal for a coal seam gas mine at Narrabri. Environmentalists and farmers concerned it will destroy their environment, groundwater, waterways generally, a whole list of threats they claim. Or, as this, and this might give us a clue where the capitalist review is going on this one, when I say environmentalists and farmers and affected communities, the editorial exposes them as implacable anti-Narrabri environmentalists and farming representatives who, along with assorted ragtag rural populists, extreme greenism, new age nimbyism, complex green tape regulation, unnecessarily delaying major projects. Lots more, but... Can you see which side the editorial's coming down on? Tough one, but, but there's a couple of clues there. Yes, in this case, the media spokesperson for the greatest little economic order of them all tells us the science confirms clearly, shows more and more fossil extraction is as safe as... See, they don't ignore the science, although that would upset poor Donald, of course. Back to on compulsory masks. Expressing concern for his workers, shopping the workers' association, note not union, association secretary Gerard DeWire, people upset with me, said if the, sorry, the police could not enforce the regulation in retail premises, then the government should send in trained killers. Wouldn't that be comforting, confronting train killers marauding your local supermarket, and doesn't it endorse Gerard's working class credentials? They, the trained killers, could solve the little problem of not having the power to fine us by enjoying the great perk of their job and just shooting us. In the apropos of not much department, a telead tells us the way to lower our cholesterol is to slather our bread with this margarine or some form or other of make-believe butter. Just mentioning at the end, it'll work along with a clean, active lifestyle. And I'm prepared to bet if our cholesterols did drop, the clean act of lifestyle would have a hell of a lot more to do with it than the make-believe butter, and reduce it lots more if we avoided the make-believe butter altogether. On Gerard's inspired idea to have trained killers in every supermarket aisle, come September, they could also shoot the impoverished thrown back onto the economic scrap heap after the government weans the unemployed and low-paid workers off money, forcing them to scrounge for food and accommodation and placing them fairly and squarely in the sights of the trained killers preserving our freedoms. And congratulations to Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Anthony All-Being-Uzi for giving the government the idea. Not that they needed his help in reducing the poverty-stricken to more poverty-stricken, but Anthony's contribution to Prutu and his dedication and commitment to workers whom he so cares about was to attack the JobKeeper scheme because it's still too low, I hear you say. No, no, because many workers were getting more than they were getting before the scheme. These people should receive no more than the pittance they were getting, he advised. How encouraging for all when the Socialist Party Supremo calls for workers to get less. Finally, 
Anthony and Gerard should get together and compare notes on their unflinching commitment to working people. Good afternoon. Mr Kevin Healy. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Eighteen years ago, a young Singaporean doctor left his comfortable life in private practice after a patient told him something that changed his life. And throughout this interview with that young doctor, Wei Tech Young, also known in Afghanistan as Hakim, we'll hear what he learned and how his life changed forever. But first, a little of life in Singapore and why that patient of his opened up his eyes to a new world view and a joy in helping Afghan refugees. Good afternoon, Hakim. And before we talk about your rewarding life helping Afghan refugees, tell me about your family and the decision to become a doctor and what that meant for you working in Singapore. I was living a typically comfortable life as a family physician in a private general practice clinic in Singapore. I sometimes imagine that if I had continued that life, it would have also been a, a good life, but uh, perhaps less close to my heart and my passion. And what was that passion while you were still in Singapore? My passion and interest was in trying to think about what I could do for people in very different circumstances from what I had in Singapore. Uh, and now it's fascinated with the lives of Central Asians who are uh, well, Asian like myself and who by all intents in terms of my humanity, it's very similar to, to me. But because of their birthplace in another country, their lives appeared different from mine. So pursuing that interest for me brought me to travel to uh, northern Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and to understand better how they, the challenges they had with poverty and with corruption, and then what I could possibly do with the skills I had. Tell me about the patient who told you, who you, who you said, has changed your life. Do you have a photo, or he had a photo of a man and his daughter? What was in that photo apart from those <laughs> two? 
uh, well, one day I was in my clinic in Singapore, and it was a very normal day of family practice for me. Uh, a patient had come in. Uh, I had finished the consultation, and at the end of that consultation, that patient said uh, that he had a photo which he thought I might be interested in, uh, knowing uh, very vaguely that I was keen on central agents and trying to do what I, something for them. So he brought out a photo, a photograph of an Afghan, middle-aged Afghan man who had his daughter on his lap, sitting on his lap. And that daughter was, she looked like she was maybe five or six years of age. And the patient, my patient told me, well, uh, uh, this man was previously an Afghan army general, and that is his daughter, and the doctor's name is Tamona, which in Dari, the language of Afghans, means desire. And I was struck by the photograph and the composure in that photograph, uh, and imagining what an army general would have gone through in all the years of war in Afghanistan. And then with his daughter as refugees in Quetta of Pakistan. And the patient then said, well, I, uh, it so happens that there is an NGO, a non-government organization, that is working among the Afghan refugees in Pakistan, including this general and his daughter. If you are interested in exploring uh, the possibility of helping this NGO out, I, I could pass you their contact. So that really started uh, uh, the ball rolling for me to ask more questions about that opportunity. And eventually I took up the opportunity to go to Pakistan to work among the Afghan refugees. How long were you in Pakistan? I was in Pakistan for slightly more than two and a half years. And what was your role? Uh, with the uh, Pakistani NGO, my role was as a medical physician and a fellow humanitarian worker, and what we were doing were, was to set up programs to provide humanitarian aid to the Afghan refugees and also to design and implement programs to help the Afghan refugees along the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan, which at that time, uh, the estimate was that perhaps there could have been one and a half to two million of those refugees on the border. Who was looking after all those refugees? This was in 2002, 18 years ago, and I think the situation then would have been perhaps similar to our current global refugee situation, where UNHCR has got some programs to help, but they really cannot manage the sheer numbers. Uh, and then different small groups of uh, humanitarian NGOs or charitable groups that try to help, as well as, I think, local communities, so local Pakistani communities that would have reached out to those refugees who settled near them. I don't think that at that time there was sufficient help, like I don't think there is sufficient help today either. Were you involved in the medical, medical side? Yes, not in, within the hospital setting, but among the 
uh, refugees in the camps and in the settlements. The NGO and I would go to the community and uh, look at some of the happies, bring some of the community members who were sick and unwell to clinics or to hospitals. So yes, I, I, I did use my medical skills among the refugees in Pakistan and subsequently as well when I moved uh, into Afghanistan for many years I was doing public health care. So you went straight from Pakistan to Afghanistan? Uh, yes, from after my two and a half year experience in Pakistan there were many refugees, Afghan refugees who were beginning to go back to Afghanistan with the hope that things were improving in Afghanistan. And as they were doing that, I decided that I would go into Afghanistan almost like following some of these refugees back to their homes uh, and see what I could do for them within Afghanistan. And where did you follow them to? Uh, many of the Afghan refugees in uh, the area that I worked in whom I got to know a bit better were people who were in Bamiyan province as well as in Kabul. And so when I entered Afghanistan, I uh, was accepted as a medical health specialist with a, a, an international NGO. And through the NGO, I explored the possibility of doing public health care work in Ragni province and then later in Bamiyan province. What were the conditions for the refugees when they returned back to Afghanistan? For different refugees, um, the refugees naturally all try to settle, resettle back into their home villages. Uh, if they still have a home, in their original place of birth, uh, and most of them would then settle, resettle back into those, in those settings. Uh, those who, whose homes are no longer uh, available for them to resettle back in, they often then try to find their, their extended relative, uh, family network uh, in different provinces, or if that also doesn't work out, then there are refugees then who have to find alternative uh, housing in whatever province that they choose to settle in. In that early time when you were going back with those refugees, was there any discrimination against them because they had left? Uh, I didn't sense it, no. Uh, the discrimination, we are thinking about the discrimination among Afghans for those who leave and those who stay, uh, I think it's not a discrimination. It's more accepting that some people either don't have the means to leave to become refugees or asylum seekers, uh, and uh, those who, who who choose to stay or who really cannot leave. And among Afghan families. Often within a single family, you would have uh, siblings or children that have left and then siblings and people who have stayed 
So they, among themselves, they don't discriminate against one another. The discrimination that uh, has gone on for many decades in Afghanistan is uh, manufactured discrimination from war, that because war has resulted in the killing of many people, uh, the killings divide people along ethnic and political lines. Where did you end up settling with the people? What part of Afghanistan? I ended up settling in Bamiyan province, which is a, a, a province in the central part of Afghanistan in the mountainous region, uh, which is at the tail end of the uh, Hindu Kush mountain range. Had there been a lot of fighting in that area? Uh, over the many decades of uh, war in Afghanistan, every province has experienced fighting, including Bamiyan, yes. Uh, but at that time, when I, when I had gone in, uh, this was, uh, when, I, when, I went back to, when I went to Afghanistan, this was in, at the end of 2004, and the U.S.-NATO uh, military operation had begun in 2000 and 2001. So it had been three years since the U.S.-NATO forces had been in Afghanistan. The Taliban had been officially defeated, and uh, but there was still ongoing fighting uh, across the country. In Bamiyan, no, there wasn't fighting at the time when I went. How would you describe the conditions of life for the people there at that time? In the initial years following the defeat of the Taliban, the so-called defeat of the Taliban, there was a general mood of hope and optimism that perhaps some normality can return to uh, their lives uh, after decades of war. But very quickly, uh, that optimism and hope changed because the um, conflict uh, seemed to persist and the fighting at different points of time uh, increased or decreased. Uh, and then over time, then, uh, in that particular decade, from 2004 to 2010, uh, it got worse and worse. And then finally, in this decade, in this past decade, we now re have reached record civilian casualty levels. You're listening to Dr. Hakim, who for the past 18 years has been working with Afghan refugees, first in Pakistan and then in Afghanistan. Also, did you find that men and, and young boys or older boys were being forced into fighting? Oh, yes, it's still the case. In fact, uh, perhaps maybe uh, the, our entire human family <laughs> should be thinking hard about how we have institutionalized the culture of fighting and war and uh, perhaps less so in some parts of the world but uh, and more so in Afghanistan and places that are war-torn where young people uh, today uh, and at the time when I first entered Afghanistan see it as uh, patriotic and a thing of honour to be able to become a soldier. And it's one way of getting a living when a living is very scarce, a good living is very scarce. 
Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and that is also part of uh, our need to, as human societies, to create as many alternative livelihoods as we can, uh, other than just uh, a military job. For a number of years, you've been a mentor for the young people in Afghanistan. How did that begin? Among the Afghan Peace Volunteers are the group of young people that I work with now. And that work with the Afghan Peace Volunteers began in a very small way in Bamiyan province where I was in 2009. Uh, They were just a bunch, they were just a group of uh, very keen, enthusiastic young people from Bamiyan University as well as from the various valleys and villages surrounding the center of Bamiyan province. They came together with the hope that they could raise their voices for peace, especially with regards to non-military and non-violent approaches to peace. After I ran a peace workshop at Bamiyan University and then visited the youth in the different villages and valleys, it was very exciting and natural for me then to walk along with them as they experimented with this work and task. It is really a privilege then for me over the years to be a friend and to be a mentor. And how old were these children and what were their backgrounds? Uh, the youth in Bamiyan province when he started off, those who were from Bamiyan University were between the age of 18 and 21. And then, but those from the villagers, they were uh, generally younger, uh, even as young as 13 years of age. And gradually, when a group of these young people decided that they will go to Kabul to register their group with the Afghan Ministry of Justice, average age group of the Afghan people just now is between 16 and in the early 20s. How far was the journey to Kabul? <laughs> in 2004, the journey on the road uh, was between 8 to 12 hours. But today, that road has been paved. And so Afghans who make that road journey take about three and a half to four hours now compared what? to those days. Yeah, that road, unfortunately, in the past 10 years now, has become unsafe for everyone, including for Afghans. From whom? From thieves and those who fight in the name of the Taliban. Those are the two main groups of people that have claimed responsibility for killings along that road. You're talking about young people who have known nothing in their life but war. Did you find that pretty amazing that they were thinking of peace? in amongst all that trouble? Yes. I admire them. I look to them for strength. And I have learned that this is a human quest that in the worst circumstances of war, people really yearn for peace even more than those who live in relative peace. And was this the beginning of the Afghan peace volunteers? Uh, Yes, it was. In the days of uh, Bamiyan province, we weren't an, uh, an official, officially registered group. They gathered in a park that the youth built and created called the Bamiyan Peace Park, uh, when we held activities and organized programs 
we would organize those activities and programs around the park or in different public places or at the university. Then when that group of, some of that group of youth moved to Kabul, I had also moved to Kabul, other youth from Kabul and from many provinces who are represented in Kabul came together and they decided we will register ourselves as the Afghan Kids Volunteer. They had full support from their parents? No. <laughs> For Afghan families, like all other families, their concern is safety for their children. And they didn't know whether or not involvement in a group that speaks out for peace meant that it will endanger their children's lives. And among the older folk in Afghan society, uh, understandably and legitimately, they feel that peace and non-violence specifically is not a very realistic thing to ask for uh, after decades of war in Afghanistan. Well, if the young people don't do it, the older people aren't going to do it, are they? <laughs> yeah, so uh, the Afghan peace volunteers often have to engage in conversations in, in their own homes over their meals to explain to the parents what they are doing and what they hope uh, and to persuade the parents. Uh, some of the parents are persuaded. Some, over the years, we have spoken and shared among ourselves how, for some of them, it will take a much longer time for them to believe that peace is possible. Talk about their role with the border-free street kids. Uh, over the years, Afghan peace volunteers uh, organized themselves more and more in Kabul. They found that they needed to address three broad areas of work. Over time, they have uh, named those three broad areas with the acronym GEN, uh, as in Earth Generation. They consider themselves the Earth Generation, and GEN, G-E-N, as the acronym for Green, Equal, and non-violent. So under the equal branch of their work, they felt that they needed to do something to be more equal towards the street kids in Afghanistan. Uh, some of the volunteers themselves were, were street kids. In particular, for example, the Kula had been one of the volunteers who had gone from Bamiyan to Kabul, and he was a street kid in Bamiyan. So with that uh, motivation of doing something for street kids, they began small pilot programs. Initially, it was just 12 street kids, then uh, subsequently 25 street kids. And then finally, in 2015, the street kids themselves, who were already involved in the program, went out to their fellow street kids and gathered 70 of them. And they held the very first street kids protest march in Kabul. That was really something, uh, I've recorded that on video and it's on YouTube, where these 70 street kids marched, they marched to the uh, gates of the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission and asked for a school for 100 street kids. Now, following that protest march, thankfully there was a official, a government official from the 
Afghan Ministry of Education who noticed that in the news and on radio on a radio program he explained that the Afghan Ministry of Education did not have those funds to help. So among the Afghan peace volunteers in conversation with our international partners from across the world, the Afghan peace volunteers established the border free street kids school and enrolled 100 street kids to fulfill their dream of having a school. How often do they go to school? Uh, the Border Free Street Kids School is really just a supplementary education program to the government schools that all the children go to. So the street kids are not kids that stay in the streets like in some other countries. They work in the streets and stay in their own homes. And they work in the streets for usually most of the day, and for three or four hours, they go to the government school. Then uh, on Friday, which is uh, Sunday in Afghanistan then, when everybody is at home, then these street kids come to the border free street kids school and have four hours of lessons in very non-violent and skills. And they receive food for their going to school, is that correct? Yes, up to the end of last year, as part of the Border Free Street Kids School Program, to encourage their families to send their kids for less number of hours into the streets to work. The school, on a monthly basis, has provided food gifts, staple food gifts, like rice and oil, cooking oil and beans, so that they could have those provisions for the month, every month, and feel less pressure, financial pressure, to send the kids out to work more hours in the street. At the end of last year, uh, over the years, though we have found that to be valuable, the Afghan Peace Volunteers want to gradually shift that program to equipping the street kids that we enroll in livelihood skills training. What sort of livelihood skills? Uh, In the past month, we have enrolled 25 of our street kids in learning how to repair mobile phones. And now that the access to mobile phones is increasing across the world and also in Afghanistan, there are many mobile phone repair shops uh, in Kabul city. We hope that some of these street kids will learn this skill enough to be able to establish perhaps a mobile phone repair worker cooperative. You said you work with other NGOs from around the world. How important is your work with the Voices for Creative Nonviolence? Voices for Creative Nonviolence has been one of our main uh, partners over the years. I, I first got to know one of the main coordinators of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, Kathy Kelly, in 2010, after <laughs> sending her and Voices for Creative Nonviolence many emails, she finally had the opportunity to come to uh, Afghanistan and she got to know some of the youth in Bamiyan and over the years subsequently established that partnership with the Afghan Peace Volunteers uh, to support both uh, in terms of funding needs as well. Uh, mainly, and I would say perhaps more important than that, to uh, support in 
their connection with the peace volunteers for learning about non-violent practices. Can you talk about the Road to Peace conference, which was held in 2019 in Kabul? That was the first Road on the Youth to Peace conference that the volunteers had organized. The first was in 2017, the second in 2018, and then the third Youth on the Road to Peace conference was in 2019. And the idea behind this annual conference is to gather youth from as many of the fielding ethnic groups in Afghanistan as possible to come together to talk about how they can practice peace together as a multi-ethnic community. And that's been really important, isn't it, the multi-ethnic communities? Uh, Yes, that has been radical, uh, I would say, uh, and I really admire the youth for being radical. While the ethnic divisions are still intense as we speak, uh, they are providing space for young people who want an alternative way of interacting peacefully and of resolving their conflict to exemplify uh, multi-ethnic living and working together. Have you followed up some of these children as they were then to what they're doing now? Uh, yes, they have become a family, and um, that's really something which has been personally enriching for me uh, to be to have the privilege of entering into their community and family life, personal life, then in connection with our international partners. For me as well, just uh, along with the Afghanistan volunteers discovering our human family. I have followed some of them from the time when they were very young. For example, uh, Abdul Hai is one of our very first core Afghan Peace volunteers, and I first met him when he was seven years old. Uh, now he is in his early 20s, and he's just graduated from the International University uh, in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. I went to visit him in 2018 in Mongolia. Uh, I'm so fortunate to be able to be involved in his life and in the lives of many of these young people from the time they have joined the Afghan Peace Volunteer Community. What about the girls and the young women? Uh, The girls are wonderful too. At one point of time, uh, from 2012 to 2013, 17, we first established a male, multi-ethnic male living community of about 16 male volunteers from uh, more than six ethnic groups uh, living together in a house compound to exemplify multi-ethnic living, almost like an ashram of Gandhi. Uh, and when we had that good experience and learning experience, we subsequently established a female living community as well. That female living community was a separate community because of their religious and social customs. It started later, so it didn't grow in numbers. Uh, it was a good effort. And those two multi-ethnic communities now are no longer functioning. Uh, the people within those communities have moved on. But the volunteers now at the Border Free Centre 
in Kabul are both the male and female volunteers. We still haven't reached a 50-50 percentage male and female ratio yet. We are probably about 40% female and 60% male, but I think we'll get there soon. Have you found a lot of resistance from some of the parents to allow their daughters to take part in your organisations? Not resistance, but this is a very natural process of trust building. So building trust with their families and with the volunteers themselves. So many of the female volunteers who enter the community and space for interaction with the male volunteers are doing it for the first time in their lives as well. And so for them, they also don't trust the male volunteers initially. So both the volunteers themselves and then subsequently once the volunteers themselves, the female volunteers gain enough trust with the male volunteers, they then build that trust with their family members. Uh, That needs to be built. If not, uh, a lot of misunderstanding can happen. And when misunderstandings happen, we have had instances when parents have disallowed their children from continuing with their son, please volunteer. What is your role within these communities now? How do you fit in? And tell me how you got your name, Hakim. Hakim is an Arabic name that Afghans use Arabic names. It means a local doctor and a learned person. When I was working among Afghan refugees in Quetta, Pakistan, they saw me as a medical doctor, as that was what I was doing. So they thought, well, this is a fitting name for you, Hakim. And from that time on, they all called me Hakim. And I've been really happy to learn this part of my humanity that we really are given names according to where we are born. <laughs> so I enjoy it. With, in, in terms of feeling part of their community and identifying with them, that has been wonderful for me. Finally, COVID-19 pandemic, it's affected every part of the world now. What is it like in your area? In Kabul, Afghanistan now, I, as a medical physician, would say that they, like Brazil, Mexico, uh, countries even in the current surge in Texas, Florida, uh, they would be in that situation now. And surprisingly, I had spoken to one of our international participants of our project, Relational Learning Project, who lives in Texas, and she was remarking how the community in Texas, for some of the U.S. citizens there, they believe in conspiracy theories. They believe that all sorts of theories about the virus. And this is quite similar, she says, to what she hears from the Afghan participants in that circle she was in, who talked about how in Kabul now, with the virus raging on, with the number of deaths climbing every day, with the grave figures not having enough time to dig enough graves, with the religious mullahs getting overwhelmed with the funeral prayer and not being able to go to every funeral 
uh, to stay the press. And that is the situation now. Uh, and as medical physician, I wish that more could be done. Unfortunately, local government in Afghanistan, perhaps like politicians in other parts of the world, are not being helpful now. Has it reached your communities? Yes. One of our female volunteers uh, had been infected with the virus. She described how she went to the only dedicated facility in Kabul for the care of COVID-19 patients at that time. She was discharged after just five days, not even followed up with any quarantine. It has affected our community. Uh, Many of the volunteers have sadly told me that among the extended relatives members, two or three even uh, extended family members so far. How does all that impact on your life there and your ability to stay? Since the start uh, of the virus, for me as an international partner of the volunteers, the volunteers have told me to go back and return to Singapore. And I had decided otherwise, Jen. I felt at that time that I wanted to stay to support them and to be with them, uh, but the volunteers themselves thought otherwise. I, I then made the decision to come back to Singapore, where I am now, where uh, on a daily basis, as I keep in touch with them remotely, by messenger and online conversations, I realized I really need to, like the rest of the world, remain supportive to them as best as I can. We have organized two food distributions, Uh, to help those families in need. Thank you so much, and it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much, Jan. I've been speaking with Dr Hakim, eager to go back to Afghanistan as soon as the coronavirus pandemic allows it. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your dial. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 9419 Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419 3CR Community Radio, here to stay.
speaking now with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. And Kate, well, we wake up to yet another cold morning here in Melbourne in Western Sahara. It's so hot that apps on a mobile phone cannot operate. That's right. Takba, our Sahari visitor who came to Melbourne last year, sent me a little picture of her, the screen of her mobile phone that said that nothing would work, just the contacts and the phone function were the only two things that would work on the phone because of device too hot, I think it says. Oh, and when it's 50 degrees, all kinds of things go wrong. Is that unusual for that time of year? It's not unusual for it to hit 50 sometimes, but I think it's unusual for them to have a fortnight of temperatures around those areas, you know, like 48, 47, 48, up to 50-something, 52, 53. Uh, Hardly any drop during the night, apparently. That must be really hard to bear because um, normally when it's this time of year, they sort of cower in their tents where it's still very hot, but it's not indirect sunshine during the day. But at night, when the sun goes down, it's usually a bit cooler and they can go out and get a bit of fresh air and eat outside and, you know, enjoy the evening a little bit. But it must be very hard if it's still, let's say, something like 40 degrees at night. I mean, we complain in Melbourne if we that we can't sleep when it's a mere 28. <laughs> so, yes, I think it must be very hard for them, and especially for the children, because they, they normally try to get the children out of the camps at this period of the year because it's so hard. But uh, this year they couldn't risk the children bringing the virus back with them if they went to Spain, so they have to stay in the camps. I'll come back to that in a minute, but you say the people are living in tents. Can you describe a tent? Because they're big families, aren't they? They are big families. They normally have they have a tent, but they increasingly... I mean, they're a big tent. It's a big tent. I don't know. It would be five metres square or something like that. Like a quite a decent-sized room. And there might be... Or it might even be a bit bigger than that with partitions, perhaps. But mostly it's a one-purpose room that is living room by day, a bedroom by night. However, they also do have increasingly uh, mud brick rooms as well. And the kitchen and the bathroom are in these mud brick houses, if you like, that they have made themselves. And they will have a, perhaps an enclosed courtyard made with mud brick walls as well to keep the wind down because the wind can be very strong and, the, and the, it moves the sand a lot. So it would keep the sand out too, to have a walled courtyard around the perimeter of the family, well, shall I say, an encampment. But when I've been there, I've actually normally, I think, been accommodated in one of the mud brick rooms, along with a lot of other visitors and and, uh, in sleeping bags lying side by side on the floor. You know, it's not necessarily a a room appointed in the way that we would do it ourselves. I'm not quite sure whether they, um, you know, it depends which they think is coolest and which is warm. In, in the heat, the tents are thinner, of course, but so to some extent the mud bricks will be insulation against the heat. I'm not sure whether they would, whether in the event they prefer being in the a mud brick room or, or in the uh, tents. 
they do have both uh, facilities in most most of the families. I think both a, a tent and some other rooms. How and where does the preparation and the cooking take place? Oh well, they have a, a, a as I say, one of the mud brick rooms will be a, a kitchen. They prepare the food there. I haven't ever had much to do with that. They won't let guests anywhere near to help <laughs> such uh, hospitable people. So yes, I think that they like a very well appointed camp that somebody might have. When I see the camp setups that people have these days, sometimes you know they're, they're pretty sophisticated. But uh, yes, there'd be some sort of a bench and they might even have some tiling. Somebody might have brought back from Spain some tiles or something like that around the back of the stove or even on the on the bench top. And, and, and they would just um, chop up things there, put the peelings in the bucket for the goats and cook over a, probably a gas, camping gas kind of um, stove of some kind. But yes, as I say, I haven't always had, ever had very close experience of the cooking because, uh, as a guest, you're not allowed. You say the children can't go for their holidays in peace to Spain this year. How does that work? How are families chosen to take these children and how old are the children who go? The children, they're not the very young ones, but they would be maybe seven or eight, the youngest, and up to about... 11 maybe like the older primary aged children we used to like them to come to international camps but we wanted them to sort of pair with the children in our groups who were more like you know 9 to 13 or even the older ones if possible but we they wouldn't ever send those older that older group to us they would come, uh, these young ones, sort of nine, ten-year-olds. And because they're, well, Saharawis tend not to be very big people in the first place, but these children tend to be a bit stunted in growth because of malnutrition in the camps. They always looked extremely small and young compared with the uh, British children that they would, in the, in the families. We would, as an organisation, host whatever it was, uh, 10 children and two leaders, let's say, and we would just find among our own members families who were willing to accommodate them. And then some of the time we would take them on a camp as well. But, but with Spain, I I've frankly have no idea how they they do it, but I think that it would probably be done through the different associations of solidarity and support for the Sahrawis, some families have the children year after year. I think others probably just do it once or twice. But the Sahrawis really like it. And then sometimes they encourage the Spanish family to go back and visit the Sahrawi family at another time of year, very often at Easter. And one year when I was, I went to a women's conference at Easter. And there was a charter running from Madrid, or at least several charters. So I think there was more than several planes were going, plane lines were, and nearly all of them were families going back to visit the Sahrawi family. And they'd sometimes been given a sort of shopping list of things to take. <laughs> so they'd have copious uh, luggage to take back with them. My, the friend that I was going with is half uh, Spanish and she's speaks perfect Spanish and she was laughing because our flight was delayed and 
the person in the queue behind us was worried that the frozen chicken that she'd brought mm. for them was going to thaw out. <laughs> so they, yes, there's a, there's a lot of solidarity and support between the Spanish people. It's really only the the governments that find them, uh, you know, painted themselves into the corner of not of trying to stay friends with Morocco and have let the Sahrawis down. When you're talking about Britain there, that's when you lived in England. Do they still go to England? That's right, yes. I think there was a group that went last year, actually. There was a bit of a hiatus when the person who'd done it year after year after year finally drew a line and said no more, and nobody else came forward for a couple of years. But I think there was another delegation that went off and over quite recently, but as I I say, they won't be going this summer, which is now, I mean, the the British summer. It's quite a bit of work for the hosts involved, uh, people organising the whole programme, because part of the aim of the game is to get as much publicity as we we could, as well as giving the children a good time. Uh, You try and and get a, a newspaper to come and take a picture of the children you know, at an ice rink was one thing, or in the swimming pool, or uh, on the beach, or something like that, rowing on a lake, uh, any of these things to do with water that they could make a little story of, you know, the children from the desert who had never seen the sea before, and all this sort of thing. That would be a major part of it, because the Sahrawis say that the children are their best ambassadors, and so it's certainly got a awareness-raising aspect for the the Sahrawi authorities but I mean basically it's it's fun for the children and they liked all sorts of things that we didn't necessarily expect like they liked stairs houses with stairs were a complete novelty to them <laughs> nearly every house in Leeds is, is, has stairs I mean there's very few houses that are what they call bungalows i.e. single story houses unlike Australia, and uh, and they thought these were wonderful going up and down the stairs. <laughs> they also liked bicycles, and you know they they liked just hanging around, and they liked they loved getting on the phone and ringing their uh, friends and that sort of thing too. That was before mobile phones became quite so widespread. It, it was much more of a novelty in the 1990s when we started our program in the UK. And as you've said, the reason why the children can't go this year is because of the the virus. Has it reached the camps and Western Sahara itself? I think there might be some cases in the occupied territory, but I haven't got much information about that. In the camps, I was looking to see the latest information. On the 18th of July, the Minister of Health reported that there were no cases, but just this morning I've seen a message from Melanie Lachal, who's another Sahrawi who visited Melbourne some years back. He's now the ambassador in Botswana, but he's still doing a fair bit of journalism on the side because that's his his basic profession. Uh, And he put a message on Facebook saying that there were four cases that had been reported in the camps. One was critical to have no symptoms, and the fourth one has mild symptoms. So I'm hoping that they will be able to isolate those people and 
and their contacts, because for the last two weeks, presumably, these or some of these people will have been in contact with other people, especially the ones with no symptoms who might not have realised until tested. So I hope that they can contain it, because if they can just sort of ring fence those particular cases, that will be good. But as we know, this virus is very keen to get everywhere, and I suppose it's inevitable that it comes, but they were hoping to hold on and get just like we are in Australia, generally speaking, trying to hold on and limit the effect until some kind of remedy is found. How would you judge the health systems in both the occupied territories and the camps? I'd imagine it must be could be pretty basic. Uh, well, yes, it is pretty basic in, in one sense, but the Sahrawis are very proud of the fact that they've never had an epidemic in their refugee camp, unlike other parts of Africa. From the start, they were quite uh, careful to install good health provision. Every town has certainly got a hospital. I'm not quite sure every village might have one as well. Within the there's four main towns, plus a sort of central, like capital uh, town, five towns. No, there's five towns now. And then within that, there's, there's a kind of suburbs, as it were, uh, that they call, you know, I was calling villages. The, but, the, you know, this is, a, a again, a mud brick building, whitewashed, with concrete floor, iron bedsteads, and fairly rudimentary equipment. But they have uh, well-trained staff who have, have been quali- who qualified very often in Cuba or Spain. Quite remarkable, really, how many Saharawis there are who, who are medically trained in one form or another. There are also doctors who visit the camps with, for various specialisms. There used to be an ophthalmology unit that would come every year from Spain. But at one point during the Spanish recession recently, the economic crisis, they were appealing for a group from another country to take their place because they were finding it too hard to get the funds to support. They have a a mobile unit that they take across and they visit the different areas to give treatment for something like that. But but the, the doctors and the midwives and the dentists are all trained in um, in Cuba and it, they're very well run really. Needless to say they're a bit short of medicine and it's hard to organize that because different countries might make donations but then the instructions are written in the wrong language. Uh, there was a German group called Medico which who were supplying medications for the camps uh, as their main contribution. There was there used to be a special celiac unit from Italy because there's rather a lot of celiac disease among the Sahrawis, but I believe that that also sort of fizzled out. I don't know what happened, but it's very hard for volunteers to sustain 
their work over extended periods of time. They just can't keep going, and that's what happens. And I guess nobody gets treated then. I don't know what happens when the uh, volunteers have to withdraw. Small unit of, of Cuban doctors in the camps who assist in the national hospital. They'd also have to be careful at this moment too, Kate, that people don't bring the virus back into the camps with them from other countries who are sending people to help. That's right. No, I have a, I'm not sure that, that there are many volunteers there now. I think that they asked all the volunteers to evacuate at the first lockdown in March. I doubt that they've gone back. So they will be trying to cope on their own resources. Again, Tekba, our visitor last year, works in the health department and she was uh, asking us if we could supply any of the treatment or, you know, like ventilators or anything that they might have needed. But the cost was going to be, well, higher than our small funds could reach, could 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 stretch to. But uh, I hope that there will be other organisations that are able to uh, supply the needs. They must have had some tests or they wouldn't know about these poor cases that are just reported on. But I doubt if they've got enough kits to test everybody, for example. It's still pretty precarious. Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and we'll hear more of Kate on the program next week. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6pm Tuesdays. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855am. I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. 
but I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. On the program last week, we heard our monthly report from the Pacific with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Today, it's a special announcement. The Walkley Foundation has awarded Nick and Joe Chandler the Sean Dorney Grant for Pacific Journalism, which aims to encourage more and better journalism about the Pacific Island region by Australia media professionals and news outlets. So, Nick, it's congratulations from all of us here at 3CR, and what was the essence of your application which impressed the judges? And what were the comments of the judges? Yeah, well, it's a great honour to be given the award. Rather ironic that the day it was announced was the day that the six weeks of lockdown was announced as well. So the prospect of being given financial assistance to travel in the Pacific at a time when I can't travel is a certain irony and all that. The project I'm working on is exactly what we've been talking about. It's about uh, France, Australia and self-determination in the Pacific, looking at uh, what the COVID pandemic means for people living in in these overseas uh, dependencies and trying to bring some voices, Kanak voices, uh, Maui, Polynesian voices, into the Australian discussion. You know, there's a lot of talk about the Australian-New Zealand travel bubble, which hasn't got off the ground, but the idea that if we can get the epidemic or the pandemic under control, um, Australians might be able to go to New Zealand as tourists and travellers, vice versa. Pacific governments are saying, well, hang on, we'd like to be party to that. In fact, we could do a New Zealand Pacific travel bubble sooner because there are less cases in New Zealand than there are in Australia. So once again, it's a situation where Australia and New Zealand are making decisions about about Oceania without engaging as actively as they should with Pacific voices, Pacific governments, Pacific citizens. And I think this is an ongoing issue. You know, Australia's step up is framed uh, in the Pacific, uh, often through a concern about strategic denial, about Chinese political and strategic advances in the region, rather than addressing the priorities and agendas of Pacific governments and Pacific Pacific communities. Uh, And so that's going to be an ongoing discussion. And so Joe Chandler, who's a freelance journalist now teaching at the University of Melbourne, is looking at the issue of climate change on women, um, my project about France in the Pacific and Australia relations, projects that will be undertaken over the next year, with thanks to the Walkley Foundation and a number of individual donors who put up uh, the funds. The award named after Sean Dorney, a uh, long-time uh, ABC and Radio Australia correspondent. Sean lived and worked in Papua New Guinea for many years. He's uh, served as uh, Radio Australia and then Australia Network TV's uh, uh, Pacific correspondent and is one of the Australians who work uh, hard not just to carry Australian voices into the Pacific, but to bring Pacific perspectives back into the Australian debate. 
and I think both Joe and I hope to be doing that uh, over the next year. If we can travel, that will be an added bonus, um, but we'll wait and see how things pan out for, for people over coming months. Well, looking back, Nick, when did your interest and concern about Pacific issues become an area that you wanted to concentrate your journalism on? Decades ago, well before I got into, involved working as a journalist, when I was a university student showing my age in the 1970s, the issue both of nuclear testing, uranium mining and self-determination for indigenous peoples was hot on the agenda. 1975, the Indonesian invasion of Timor. 1978, um, uh, across the Pacific, movements for um, independence were very active. PNG was independent in 1975, Vanuatu in 1980. It was a time of incredible ferment. 1984, the Kanak uprising. And that period where Australia had a very strong movement against uranium mining, and I was actively involved in that. And then through the 80s, people for nuclear disarmament addressing uh, nuclear weapons and uh, the threat of nuclear annihilation was very much tied to the issue of nuclear testing across the Pacific and the rights of Indigenous peoples. And from the beginning in the Pacific, the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Movement made the connection between nuclear and environmental issues and the right to self-determination, the issue of decolonisation, self-government and, uh, and political independence. And those were tied together very much. You know, the slogan was, the only reason that France can test in the Pacific is because it's a colonial power in the Pacific. So if it's safe, tested in Paris. And that was very much the slogan of the, the 1970s and 80s against French nuclear testing. So my interest and involvement in the Pacific was there. I spent a decade working for the Australian Volunteers Program uh, as a field officer throughout the Pacific and uh, ended up working and living in Fiji in the late 1990s. So I've had a, a long personal involvement. Over the last couple of decades, I've worked as a journalist part-time with Radio Australia, as a freelance journalist and as a correspondent with a magazine called Islands Business, which is published out of Fiji. I'm one of their correspondents and have been for, for a number of years and so have continued to do that. And I think partly it's because of Australia's colonial heritage in the region as an Australian citizen. I think it's really important for Australians to to think about their relationship with neighbouring countries. So what was active in the 20th century around nuclear testing is parallel today around um, climate change and Australia's obvious role as one of the world's largest exporters of forest fossil fuel, particularly coal, that has fundamental importance for our neighbours in the region and, uh, you know, it's really important to, to bring that in. And 3CR has played an important part of that, um, um, bringing Pacific voices into the Australian con conversation. Where did it start for you? Asia Pacific Currents, was that the one? Yeah, I was one of a team of people back in the 1980s that set up Asia Pacific Currents, which i um, still pleased to say is still going on, uh, not with my involvement, but... Um, Saturday mornings, a group of us uh, back in the 80s saw the need to look at the whole range of social struggles, political struggles, trade union struggles, uh, indigenous people struggles that were going on in the region. And Asia Pacific Currents was, you know, there were a number of groups, including the Australia East Timor Association, the Nuclear Free and Independent Group in, in Melbourne, um, the Philippines Action Support Group and other individuals, Australia Asia Worker Links, um, Steve Lavender and uh, Bob Muntz and others in those days. And we came together as a coalition of group concerned about the Asia-Pacific region and concerned to bring people's voices into the discussion. You know, there's lots of government-to-government -government debate and 
In those days, there weren't as many think tanks, but there was sort of a media consensus about what was going on, particularly, say, around the invasion of, of Timor by the Indonesians, uh, uh, where the Canberra consensus was very much in support of the occupation by Indonesia. And so 3CR was a, a crucial platform to um, allow different perspectives to come into the debate and to educate, to inform, to inspire people through the radio, drawing on voices. So using quite clumsy technology. God, I think about what we used to do with literally razor blades and sticky tape to tape together interviews and cut out the ums and ahs in days of reel-to-reel tape. I'm showing my age there. That was uh, a really crucial thing about interviewing people in Asia, in the Pacific particularly, and, uh, and, and giving that perspective to a radio audience in Australia. The technology's changed, but the issue hasn't. Um, our mainstream media are bloody hopeless, by and large, uh, at reporting the contemporary Pacific, reporting what's happening from a people's perspective in Asia. It's a, a real problem, given uh, there's so much happening, so much dynamism in the Asia-Pacific region. And I imagine, Nick, that you've visited just about every country, or you have visited every country in the Pacific area. I think I've got three left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've... I've been very lucky. Uh, you know, I've had a job which has involved travel, which um, worries me nowadays given the, the carbon footprint that I have from air travel. Uh, it's a significant issue. But um, through both work as a development worker involved in community campaigns and as a journalist, I've been travelling for a number of years around the region. Yeah, I think I've never been to Rapa Nui, Easter Island, which is under Chilean occupation at the moment. I've never been to the Northern Marianas Islands, which is a US Commonwealth uh, in the Northern Pacific. And never been to Pitcairn, which is a tiny British protectorate east of Tahiti, a population of less than 50 people. The descendants of the Bounty Mutineers live on Pitcairn. So there's a few places, um, but most of the rest of the Pacific Wearing one hat or another, I've uh, had the had the great pleasure and, and interest to, to visit over the years. And so many issues over those years, as you've pointed out, Nick, and mostly good, but a few of them not so good. Pacific countries, as we've talked about on, on this program many times, are, are facing global challenges. You know, there's a, a common framework that's put from many commentators, not just on the right in Australia, that, you know, these... Poor Pacific countries face all these problems and that are particular to them, problems of corruption or crisis or coups or climate change and so on. But in fact, all of these issues are global issues. It's called global warming for a reason. And the bushfires over last summer should remind Australians that the, the adverse effects of climate change affect not only low-level atoll nations in our neighbourhood, but affect Australia as well the pandemic of violence against women that you see in Papua New Guinea, terrible crisis in Papua New Guinea about violence against women in Fiji and so on as well. There's also an issue within Australia, and more so even at this time of uh, lockdown where people are, are often, women are often uh, forced into you know, close contact with their abusers. The challenge about model of development that's appropriate for uh, indigenous communities in the face of transnational corporate interests in resource exploitation these are challenges in Australia, just as they are in Papua New Guinea and Fiji, in Kiribati and beyond. One of the problems is that the framing of the Pacific as these small, isolated, weak countries underplays and ignores often the responses of Pacific peoples. And you see that very clearly at the moment, where 
overseas engagement, overseas aid, overseas travel and visitors to the Pacific has, you know, been badly hampered by the restrictions evident with transport collapsing, tourism collapsing, borders being closed. But there are innovative and vital responses from people of the Pacific to try and deal with these problems. There's a wonderful website called Reset Fiji that's doing a whole series of meetings, talks, television broadcasts where people are debating how can we use this crisis as an opportunity to restructure our society, our economy, our culture, our manufacturing uh, debates that are just beginning to bubble away in Australia but are certainly vibrant in many Pacific countries with people seeing this as a, a chance to reset a whole range of institutions, of processes, of uh, economic structures. You know, it's not as if Pacific Islanders are simply twiddling their thumbs and saying, oh, woe is me. Around the region, there's a diversity of responses and actions of people looking at how to address the very concrete problems that particularly poor people and vulnerable people in the society are facing loss of jobs, with unemployment, with lack of access to foodstuffs and so on. There are really concrete responses going on. And I think that's not really captured in the Australian media. And it's one of the pleasures I've had of having a job that allows me to go out and see with what people are doing and talk to people um, stuff that you just don't get off the internet. Well, once again, Nick, all I can say is congratulations. Long may you continue to be part of the 3CR team as well. Yeah, well, thanks to 3CR because uh, regular gig, uh, you know, going back a few decades, I've been been rambling on 3CR and hoping that people out there find it interesting. Um, there's a lot happening in the Pacific Islands. The mainstream media doesn't do justice to the diversity and the complexity of some of the issues going on in our region, and yet we are so connected through colonial history, through geography, through the interventions of Australia into the region, particularly at the time of the so-called Pacific step-up, the way in which Australia is engaging with neighbouring island countries. What are the drivers for that engagement? Um, you know, can we look beyond China and fear of China as a political influence in the region to understand the sort of collective diplomacy that Pacific governments are advancing? Can we bring those Pacific voices into our discussions about, for example, how we make a transition this climate change, how we deal with the challenges of economic and uh, social transformation in areas that are reliant on fossil fuel exports. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot that we can learn from neighbouring Pacific countries, despite the differences of economy, of society, of culture. You know, we're in this together, and because uh, of geography, we will always be uh, surrounded by small island states, and so the issues that face them ultimately face us. Thank you, Nick. Thanks a lot. Journalist and researcher Nick McClellan speaking about his award from the Walkley Foundation, the Sean Dorney Grant for Pacific Journalism. The Queen Victoria Women's Centre is calling all craftivists to join us and make a fuss. Make a Fuss is a crowdsourced, craftivist project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. to 
3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. In 1961, Dag Hammarskjöld, the Secretary General of the United Nations, died. But it wasn't a normal or expected death. He died in a plane crash on the 18th of September 1961. In what was then Northern Rhodesia, near the border of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he was mediating post-independence conflicts. There have been investigations into the plane crash, speculations that he may have been murdered, his aircraft shot out of the sky by a hostile fighter jet as it prepared to land. Questions because evidence gained by a British scholar showed that the UN discarded critical evidence from local African eyewitnesses whose testimony was given less value than that of Western experts. It also lent weight to claims that the plane's lone surviving passenger, Harold Julian, who died a few days later, heard explosions on the plane before it went down. Speculation also that Hammarskjöld's mysterious death was one of the Cold War's greatest whodunits. Congolese separatist, Belgium diamond magnate, European mercenaries, shadowy paramilitary organisations and the CIA. When looking for a cause, perhaps we should look at who gained and who lost as a consequence of his death. And today we focus on the lasting impact on the people of West Papua. I'm joined on the phone by Louise Byrne from the Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office in Melbourne. Louise, it's acknowledged that a number of countries were badly affected by the death of Dag Hammarskjöld, and we are focusing on West Papua. And it would be true to say that pivotal to the aspirations of the West Papuans was what was set up by him and accepted by the General Assembly, the experimental program for the provision of operation and executive personnel, OPEX, O-P-E-X, Can you explain how and why, but first, what was the situation in West Papua leading up to that time? West Papua, from 1950, was a non-self-governing territory. And the pathways for a non-self-governing territory, it's uh, to develop the instruments of state. And at a time that's deemed appropriate between the administering power and the non-self-governing territory, you have a referendum. There's only three choices, independence, integration with another state, or an association with another state. They're the rules of the United Nations in terms of the endpoint of a non-self-governing territory. The 
sovereign rights in those days belonged still with the administering the administering power, that's that how it was seen, coming out of colonialism, and Indonesia contested that throughout the 50s at four UN General Assemblies, and their motion wasn't passed that they had sovereign rights, not the Dutch. So there was going to be, according to Dag Hammarskjöld's thinking, no end in sight to the arguments over who owned West Papua. Now, he being him, uh, was always very strongly supportive of the colony's rights. So he, he didn't break the rules, he extended them, he pushed them. And the OPEX program for West Papua was slightly different to OPEX programs in other places because it declared as invalid the Dutch and the Indonesian claims of sovereignty and gave it to the West Papuan people. Now, he was confident in doing that because he was working with the Dutch and the Dutch had, through that 10-year period, filled in these rather onerous Article 73 reports, which went into everything. If you ever read one, they're about 70 pages long. It's an accountability measure from the administering power to the Secretary-General. How many primary schools have you made this year? How many kids in school? How many hospitals and all that sort of stuff? And so West Papua was going along within this non-self-governing territory framework. Now, after Indonesia's motion, fourth motion in the General Assembly failed in 1957, so even though Indonesia then was a very popular country because of the non-aligned movement and all the colonies on their way to becoming independent, there was still doubt in, in lots of people's minds, such that they couldn't get a two-thirds majority, that this wasn't a grab by a neo-colonial power. So after Indonesia lost its fourth or failed to get a two-thirds majority in 1957, it declared publicly that it was going to build up arms and invade what it called the Dutch puppet state. And it did. It was negotiating and getting arms and monetary from both the Cold War powers, both America and Russia. And by 1961, it had the most powerful military in Southeast Asia outside China. So that's sort of step one. Now, the plan, because it extended OPEC a little bit in this sovereignty, sort of this sovereignty declaration, the plan really needed Hammarskjöld's authority and influence, which was huge, in the General Assembly to get it up, right? So his death, according to some, pretty strong academics like Greg Polgrain said that his assassination, because he believed it was an assassination rather than a plane crash due to pilot error or uh, mechanical failure, was organised by CIA, namely Alan Dulles, because of West New Guinea as much as it was about the Congo where plane crash actually did occur. So in that General Assembly of 1961, after Dag Hammarskjöld was dead, the Dutch were on their own, more or less, in pushing this motion. And as a colonial power, there was a bit of a sniff about it. 
Oh, is this, well, Indonesia was able to create sniffs about it. This is just the old colonial power hanging on to its last vestige of interest in the Pacific and all this sort of stuff. It won a simple majority, but not a two-thirds majority. So, such, if you read the minutes of the General Assembly in November 61, it's just a nightmare of hot posh ideas, like Indonesia was feeding all its allies the most terrible sort of untruths. It was like incredible if you read it. India being one of them, Nehru was a great friend of Sukarno, and Nehru had its own problems because it was about to invade Goa. So it was exactly the same situation, a non-self-governing territory, a neo-colonial power invading, rather than letting the non-self-governing territory go through to its legal completion. Just to sort of as an example of how extraordinarily disorganised and dysfunctional functional the UN was after being governed by or you know run by Dag Hammarskjöld for so long there were 13 or 14 13 African states that were really trying to get this motion passed for West Papua the you know the Dutch Hammarskjöld sort of plan and they were putting up amendments and one amendment was would the general assembly affirm that the end result of a non-self-governing territory is a referendum, blah, 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 blah. Now, that didn't even pass. That's how crazy the UN was in 1961. Everyone was pulled apart by this massive Cold War. Russia, for two or three years, had been demanding the resignation of Dag Hammarskjöld. The Congo was aflame with foreign interest, you know, the old Belgian power, the British were in there because of their It was like a real mess there. And it just seemed like, to me anyway, the UN was just a big mess. But having failed to affirm the West Papua's right to self-determination, that is, the end of its life as a non-self-governing territory, was sort of the gateway for Indonesia and America to bring up the New York Agreement and by which, ultimately, to shorten a long story, Indonesia incorporated West Papua. So your question really was, what was Dutch New Guinea, West New Guinea, like in the 50s? It was going really well. The education had developed massively. The Dutch were pumping money in. They were a different Dutch authority that came back after World War II, and you can never compare West Papua under a Dutch colonial power and Indonesia. They were really different. And the self-determination processes were actually put up or established, really, at the start of it, during the American occupation in 1944. America, if you remember, went in and bombed hell out of the place as a part of getting rid of Japan and put in a really great Dutch administrator who had been an intelligence officer uh, during the war, and so very close to the West Papuans. So they were very clearly setting up uh, schools and civil service training schools, a police force, a defence force. They were all set up in 1944 under MacArthur, really. And MacArthur himself was influenced personally and professionally, I suppose, but professionally by the Atlantic Treaty which 
recognised self-determination. I don't know if I've totally answered your question yet, but I have run out of puff. <laughs> I think that little do. <laughs> it's very complex and very hard, you know, mm. because um, so much of this story, you know, there's such big backdrop stories, and so it gets uh, it gets really hard to explain properly. You've quoted Greg Palgrain once, and I'll quote him again. Hammerschild's formula would have changed history principally because it recognised Papuan sovereignty over Papuan land. Can you talk a bit more about the man? Who was he and what led him to have the principles that he did have? He was Swedish and he came from a very aristocratic family. Um, His father had been the Prime Minister and he'd had several positions in the Swedish government, I think Minister of Finance. He also had an international profile. He'd been part of negotiations in setting up post-war kind of stuff in Europe. And beyond that, I think he was just um, a singularly principled man. He had a uh, an aesthetic that was informed by spiritual values, and that made him very disciplined in terms of, of the UN Charter. He really took that seriously. For a start, he never wanted to be Secretary General. It came out of the blue, and he was shocked and didn't even believe the phone call for a long time. So he he wasn't a man looking for power. It was sort of thrown on him. And the one before him, um, Thai, he was um, from Finland, the UN, so we're back in the formational stages, had sort of got away from him um, because of, if you can imagine, you know, however many countries with all their interests, the arguments that go on, it sort of beat him. And he wasn't as good as an administrator anyway as Dag Hammarskjöld. Dag Hammarskjöld had very clear principles about what the UN Secretariat was, that it uh, was an international civil servant for world, the sort of mechanics of how the world would be. And under him, the UN really developed a name that you, and a set of processes that you either hated or loved. Because, you know, if you didn't agree with it, you hated it. And that was Russia. Uh, Russia wasn't agreeing at all with anything that Hammarskjöld was doing. And that's why they started a terrific campaign in the 59s and 60s as the African colonies got independence. Because that that was real wealth in African colonies. And, and none of the colonial powers really wanted to give their colonies up. So that's where he really head-butted with with the UN member states' interests, and he just seemed to be incredibly consistent, incredibly intelligent, and and in the case of West Papua, realising that after 10 years, with neither the Dutch nor the Indonesians giving an inch, that he had to develop some other formula that would deliver the best for the people. Who was his successor? And what happened to OPEC after that? So his successor was uh, a man called Utant. He was from Burma. Because the succession problem was massive, as you can imagine. Who would we get? Now, he, you know, there's various interpretations of him. He certainly wasn't up to coping with the massive tensions that were around at time. And he was overwhelmed, I think, because America was pushing him on West Papua because 
the gold, which ultimately became the Freeport mine, that uh, was at stake. And I, I tend to think, you know, that he, he just, it just got away with him. Anyway, he didn't do lots of things. You know when you're in government, I mean, there's lots of legislative things you've got to do. So this New York uh, agreement, that was between the Dutch and the Indonesians, well, he chaired the first meeting of that and completely gave up. He couldn't do it. So the Americans threw in a man called Bunker, who was a very experienced diplomat, but very close to the CIA. And this Alan Dulles, who's kind of the, um, the man before Kissinger, if you want to put it like that. So that's how the uh, New York got to be such a bungle and clearly just a pathway for Indonesia to take over West Papua. Utant seemed to be, well he was elected for a second term like Hammerskold as well, but there's lots of stuff in his story or as, uh, as UN Secretary General where it just seems that the, dis the discipline had gone out of the UN and it kind of got worse and worse and on and on we go to the, to the place we've got today, yeah. So from that date in 1961 to the present time, West Papua has never been listed on the UN Declaration for Decolonisation. Well, that was the November 1961 motion that got defeated. And so, yes, it's never been listed. It was just taken over by Indonesia. So that's why the West Papuans now, one strategy of getting their independence, which has been around for four or five years, is going back to the UN and being listed on the decolonisation agenda. And what does that take? That takes, well, there's arguments about this, but um, that takes you would, what most people would think, a motion in the General Assembly and... Um, and two-thirds vote, majority support. But let me qualify that saying this is sort of a bit unprecedented. <laughs> you know, other colonies haven't gone through this where you've got this 60-year gap. I mean, that's more than half a century. So it's a little bit unprecedented. So some say the motion should be able to be just quietly raised and put through an administrative kind of discipline and that it should go to the uh, International Court of Justice for a reading other people are saying, well, it should be raised as a motion in the General Assembly and take a vote, you know. So the mechanics of it are untested because it's unprecedented. But Vanuatu is certainly leading the charge on this and they are the formal sponsor. So they will be raising the motion. Sometimes um, I have said, well, what exactly is the motion, you know, and they won't say because it's, it's shifting. I mean, this is politics, this is the law. <laughs> so it sort of shifts a little bit, you know, the problem here or another word there, you know. So, But in general, it is about registering West Papua on the UN colonisation list. A Tree Memorial Day, whose idea was that? It sort of came out of the office and... We, last year we, we ran a um, petition for West Papua, which, you know, is more or less, was more or less the same, same wordings, all about generating support for West Papua for emotion. And so this came out of the office and it, it seemed like it was just a little bit 
more interesting perhaps than supporting a UN motion which everyone doesn't really kind of get excited about and so the other sort of um, thrust into that was we started looking at Dag Hammarskjöld and that none of the countries that got independence under him when he was Secretary General have put up memorials. There's not even one in the Congo where he was killed, you know. So uh, we just thought, well, what about if we just put Dag Hammarskjöld and West Papua together in the form of a tree and the, the leaves on the trees can carry all the stories about West Papua because they're so full of stories. You know, there's legals, there's politics, there's geopolitics, there's, you know, whichever whichever really tickles your fancy, you can tell a story about West Papua. And so with this one, we're working with the Congo people, okay, because as I said, they haven't got a... Well, the true story of Hammerskjold, he was killed five kilometres from the border of the Congo, but he was on the way to the Congo. And so they, the Congo people haven't got a memorial at all. There's one in what used to be northern Rhodesia. The place where he was killed is Ndola, N-D-O-L-A, and that's just five miles from the Congo border. So there is a big UN uh, memorial there, but it's kind of, you know, horrible brick and concrete. I mean, it's kind of attractive, but like... So we're working with Congo people, a, a man called uh, Clovis Mwamba, who's, who was in Katanga. He was born in Katanga, this province of the Congo that was causing all the problems because it's a very, like West Papua, very wealthy, gold, copper, uranium. Uranium from Congo was in the big bomb in 1945. Very wealthy and under lots of external influences from Belgium, from Britain, which then ran northern Rhodesia. Uh, it seceded from the Congo a month after the Congo was formed as an independent colony from the Belgians. So Clovis was a 14-year-old kid at that stage, and he can remember, listen to this, he can remember seeing the peacekeepers there. Now, between, in those two years, from 1963, there were 4,000 Indonesian peacekeepers. This was the first UN peacekeeping force, because Dag Hammarskjöld had to raise a peacekeeping force because the Congo was, as I mentioned before, just a flame and no one knew what was going on. Money, guns, government, CIA, the KGB, you know, it was, it was just a nightmare. So he raised a peacekeeping force and in that force there were about three or 4,000 Indonesians. So Clovis can remember his brother opening the back door of his car and saying, get in, get in, get away from those Indonesians. <laughs> He just remembered the other day. <laughs> so there's lots of memories in the Congo, and and as you probably know, the Congo's never really settled down. And part of it is reconciliation of this period, uh, reconciling what really went on. Everyone's still blaming everyone, and, that, and that's why the politics is kind of so jumpy, you know. So I, I think that's how it started. I can't quite remember. It was sort of back in January before COVID, and... That was basically how it started, it seemed to fit in. It was just a, another way, because every tree that's been planted, there's a little two-minute video of people. So all those videos are going to the UN Secretary-General, which is uh, like a petition, right? And as a non-self-governing territory, you've got a right to send petitions to the Secretary-General. So our petition last year, the normal petition, 
Uh, that went over there to New York. We've got a West Papua's got a representative in New York, Herman Wangai, and he just, you know, basically walks up and down the UN corridor and um, knows everybody, and and the guards don't blink an eye as he does so. So he will take all these little videos, we'll pack them up properly, and uh, present them to the Secretary-General. The current one is Antonio Guterres, who's Portuguese. So he's got a, a, fairly, a fairly vivid understanding of Indonesia because he just uh, was a very highly placed diplomat at the time of East Timor's independence. Yes, it's just a form of petition uh, with just a little bit more imagination than the one we did last year. You've got a date... Well, yes. Now, because of poverty, so that's the date where we're planting our tree at the office. Normally, it would be an open day, right, and everyone would come. But because of COVID, we're asking people to plant them at home and send in the videos. So that's the date we're doing it in the office. And when we set it up, we thought we'd be well clear of COVID, but we now. So that'll be a small gathering. They're all small gatherings or individual gatherings. Some people are painting a tree, some artists, and, and filming themselves during the painting process and making a little speech at the end um, about why they're doing it and what it is. There's others that are reciting a, a poem. Another one's planting a pot plant because she, can't, she hasn't got any room for a garden, to, for a normal tree. Uh, lots of councils are getting involved. The Pacific Conference of Churches has just said it will plant a tree. I'm not quite sure in which country, but um, the head has said, yes, he's going ahead. So it's kind of a popular thing. I think it's more about planting the tree that's popular than <laughs> supporting a motion, <laughs> which doesn't sound as sexy, does it? You know, a, a UN motion doesn't sound sexy at all. So that's, that's what's happening. You could only imagine, couldn't you, Louise, what the world could have looked like if Hammerschild hadn't been assassinated on that day. Oh, God. We wouldn't have an office in Docklands. We wouldn't be working like crazy. We'd be lying around reading poetry and, and indulging in various other ways. You know, like the whole world would be different. But that's the lot we've been uh, cast, you know. One amazing thing that I've learned out of this project is about a man called George Ivan Smith. Because he is the only one by which we know about this plan of the Canniscold. And he is an Australian. And he was educated at Bathurst High School. And he started Radio Australia. And he started the BBC Pacific Service during the World War II. And he started the UN Information Service, which I still use. Everything in the UN is uh, videoed, you know, TV videoed, the General Assemblies and all that sort of stuff because it's like the Parliament of the World. And so I still use that, you know, every third or fourth day. Now, this George Ivan's father was actually the governor of the local prison in Bathurst and Goulburn where he went to both those schools. Now, there's a fascinating document. He was a very close friend of Dag Hammarskjöld they liked each other. Dag Hammarskjöld was very austere. He didn't have, you know, he wasn't like the world's most popular kind of guy. Didn't encourage a, a matey friendship sort of secretariat. It was quite austere. But he had a circle of friends and George Ivan Smith from Goulburn and Bathurst was one of them. 
And there's a document which I can send you, which is an expose, really, of some of their letters between each other. Look, when I read it again, I just couldn't believe that a kid in the 40s could write and think and behave like this man did, like this George Ivan Smith. He's got to be put into our curriculum. No one I've asked in the last six months has ever heard of him. Anyway, and look at his legacy, you know, Radio Australia, all that stuff. So he, the other little hero in this story, sorry to concentrate on white heroes rather than black heroes, but this is a this is a non-Papuan sort of thing, is Greg Polgrang. For years he's been interviewing, I think he's interviewed every Indonesian general. He is such an expert on Indonesia and West Papua, and he's got a little job at Sunshine University. His book is uh, one called Incubus, but that's now, there's none left. His next book, which is the same book but a few extra chapters and things, has just been printed yesterday by Simon & Schuster in America. Uh, I don't know how we're going to get them here, but it's on, you, can, you can buy the Kindle copy online and read it. So Greg interviewed George Ivan Smith when he found out about him over a number of times and it was George Ivan Smith who said Hammerskull couldn't wait to get back to the UN from the Congo and introduce this motion. He'd done all the background work. He'd um, worked very closely with the Dutch government on this, with um, the Foreign Affairs Minister called Joseph Lunds. He'd consulted very closely with President Kennedy and also with the Economic Council of New York because these things cost money, right? And he'd even talked to MacArthur, so going back to the World War II times, you know. Now, we only know this. We only know all this because of George Ivan Smith and Greg Polgrave. Isn't that amazing? Thank you, Louise. And I have been speaking to Louise Byrne from the Federal Republic of West Papua's Women's Office in the city. And the phone number there, if you'd like to get involved in this project, is 95102191. Nine, three.